Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. As Tony said, my name is Aaron. I've joy of getting to be a part of the team here. Um, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. 1 Samuel uh, 16, we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Samuel, kind of part of a larger series that since the beginning of uh, last year, 2021, we started in the book of Genesis, and we've been kind of slowly making our way through the Old Testament. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 16 of the book of Samuel, which is a semi-famous story, as we'll uh, come to see here uh, in a bit. But kind of before we get started, one of the things that stood out to me as I was thinking about this story kind of over the past couple days in particular was the, uh, what came to mind kind of randomly, but it, it is related, is you guys remember the movie Rudy, right, with Sean Austin and, the, you know, wanting to play for Notre Dame, that underdog story? And I think there's something kind of similar with the movie Rudy, as we'll see with our text today, because, you know, Sean Austin, who plays Rudy, which I always still think of him as Samwise, but Samwise, right, playing Rudy there, and the underdog story of not being kind of seen or looked at or really giving any amount of attention to, has this desire to want to be a part of something bigger than himself, to be a part of, you know, the University of Notre Dame football team. And with his perseverance and determination, he eventually, you guys, most of you probably know the story, he makes the team. And it's a great movie, a great inspirational, you know, sort of movie to watch and just get pumped up about. And while there is differences between that movie and what we'll see in our text today, I do think there's something similar. And the similarity is simply this, being seen. Being seen. Because one thing or one way I want to frame 1 Samuel 16 is simply this idea with two words, God sees or God's sight, either way. Kurt Thompson wrote a little book called The Anatomy of the Soul, and he says in the beginning of that book that we all come into this world looking for someone, looking for us. And it's something about the human condition, the longing to be seen, to be truly known and loved, that I think we all, if we're honest, resonate with. The longing to truly be seen for Yes, all of our blind spots, our brokennesses, our failures, our sin, and to still be seen and loved and how they go together. And that's kind of where we're going to be leaning into this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 16. So kind of just by way of recap, kind of catching us up, we've been seeing over the past couple chapters, Saul, who's currently the king of Israel, kind of essentially start going his own way. He doesn't follow what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has commanded him to do, and because of that, God has determined that Saul is no longer going to become or be king of Israel. And there's, gonna shift, there's a shift that's going to happen here. So Samuel the prophet is going to now, he's being instructed in the beginning of chapter 16 to go look for this new king. And in the beginning, the first few verses, we kind of pick up that Samuel is a bit terrified. Because if, if Samuel's going to go out and start looking for a new, another king, I mean, this is kind of borderline treason, if you will. Saul is in this place where he's eventually going to essentially lose his mind, for lack of a better term. He's going to go nuts. And so Samuel, in the first few verses of chapter 16, is rightly terrified that if Saul finds out that we're going to start looking for another king, I don't know what's going to happen to myself. Now, let's pick up our story in verse 6. Because what ends up happening is Samuel is going to go to the family of Jesse, this, this family in Bethlehem, the father being Jesse, and he's instructed that from this family, there's going to be the new king, the Lord's anointed. And so what happens is Jesse brings his sons out, and we pick up in verse 6. When they, the sons of Jesse, came out, Samuel 
looked at Eliab and thought, oh, this is him. Surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. And here's the line that we'll really focus on. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man, or humanity, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, a few things I want to point out, just to pay attention to from the text. Notice first. Notice that there's this detail given about Eliab. Who Eliab would be the, is the oldest son of Jesse. David's, old, or David's oldest brother. And there's a detail, a physical detail given about the description of Eliab. He's tall. He's he, the, the height of his stature. Now, what's, what is significant about that? Can you think of another character a couple chapters ago that was described as being tall? Saul, right? And so this kind of pattern is being developed. Oh, this person is going to be the king. Saul was tall. He was going to be the great king of Israel. And so Samuel thinks, oh, Another person who's tall, someone who fits the bill, the description of what it's going to be for the king of Israel. Not so fast, God says. I have rejected him. Second, though, notice the contrast. The Lord sees not as man sees. There's a difference there. The Lord sees not as man sees. The text says, literally, the man looks as far as his eyes can see, meaning what, what man can see, what, what humans can see with their own physical eyes, that tends to be where our value, our worth, our significance is found. What we value, what we love, what we long for is often based on what we can physically see, love, touch, those sorts of things. But, by way of contrast, thirdly, the Lord, yes, doesn't see as man sees, but the Lord looks at the what? The, the heart. The heart. Now, there's a Bible word if there ever was one, right? All over the, the, the scriptures, we have language of the heart. Okay? And we have to kind of be careful here because I want to pause for a moment. Because it's often we have to be careful with, with Bible words that we just don't kind of assume that we know what we're talking about with some of these Bible words, right? Towards the very beginning of the Torah itself, in the book of Deuteronomy, Israel was called to love their Lord, their God, with all of their heart. Later on in the book of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. And in the next chapter, Proverbs 4, Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart because from it flow the streams of life. And you kind of keep tracking into the prophets. The prophets foretell a day when God would return and redeem and save his people and give the people a new heart. A soft heart, a heart that is moldable and shapeable and that conforms to God's desires and will. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he says it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So what, what, what is all, putting all those kind of passages like those together, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about the heart? See, the heart is not just, you know, the emotions or feelings. And it's definitely not just, you know, the physical organ. I think most of us get that. In the, in the Jewish mindset, in the, in the biblical Hebraic mindset, the heart is like the control center of the human person. Mind, will, desire, and emotions, all of that kind of lumped in together. See, the ancient Hebrews didn't have a word for brain. The idea, that idea of thoughts and mind would be encapsulated even within this idea of heart. 
So when God says in this passage, in, in chapter 16 of Samuel, that the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks on the heart, what we're being told is that God sees the desires, the emotions, the thoughts, what drives a human person, what motivates a human person, what, what leads to all the fears and insecurities and hardships and questions and doubts. In the biblical mindset, it's from the heart that those things arise and that God sees into the depths of even that. See, sometimes when, let's take a step back and just momentarily think about our day. We might approach each other and and I'm not trying to be negative here, but we might, you know, meet someone or see someone and say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. But in, in some ways, that's often just surface level. How are we doing? That's kind of outward appearance. But when you really, you know, and part of that is just, you know, out of the nature. You, you aren't just going to, you know, you have two minutes passing by, just divulge all that that's going on, right? So, I, again, not trying to be super critical with that. But at the same time, as relationship and time and intimacy develops, we often hopefully move past that outward appearance. How are you doing? Good. To have these longings, these desires. I'm struggling here. Everything's not fine. Now we're getting at heart level stuff. And we begin to be seen by someone else deeper than, how are you doing? Good. And what the text is telling us here is that that moment, when you have that relational intimacy with someone that you trust and you know, that is what is always happening with our God, who sees the depths of our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, our longings, our anxieties, and sees us deeply and loves us deeply in that. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks on the heart. But let's keep building. The text actually builds on this. Verse 8. Then Jesse, that's again the father, called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has chosen none of these. Now, another detail from the text that's worth pointing out. How many sons, according to the text, does, 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 does uh, Jesse have? Seven. I think this is actually really key. Because the number seven, and notice who's not mentioned here yet. David, right? David's not included in the seven. And what you have here is that this is kind of the Bible's way of, of talking about, because the number seven is this number of like completion or wholeness throughout the scriptures. Think about the very first story of the scriptures. God creates the heavens and the earth in what? Seven days. It's this moment, this, this description of completion. And so when all seven sons pass by, Jesse's like, this is the whole gang right here. This is the complete, you know, Lot, so to speak, of, of, of who to choose from. This is it. I've shown you everything. This is my complete sort of, these are the, 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 the complete family right here. But look what the text says then. 
are all your sons here, verse 11? And he, Jesse, says, no, there's one more. There remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. It's hard to miss. It's easy to miss. But the way that the text is describing the seven sons and then this follow-up question in verse 11, what the text is telling us is David is a forgotten in this whole family. David has grown up in a family where he's been neglected, forgotten about, and not seen. He's not a part of the complete seven, the whole. And the text also tells us he's keeping the sheep. Now, again, another biblical image, image, right? Shepherd, sheep. We love this stuff. Jesus is the great shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And I'm like, yes, flannel graphs with sheep. We love this, right, if you grew up in the church, right? But we need to remember, even the Christmas story, right? The, the angels come to the shepherds at night in Luke chapter 2. We love shepherds. But the ancient world... The, they didn't. There was not a respected occupation. That's why the text, pay attention, it says, but he is keeping the sheep. It's like this subtle, like, dig. Not only, he's the, not only is he the neglected, forgotten about child, he's also the one that has the occupation that no one else wants to do. See, ancient Hebrew people did not grow up in second grade saying, I want to be a shepherd when I grow up. No one did that. You know, it's fun having our, our little kids, we, Sienna, who's almost seven, and Casey's almost five, and they're getting to this point where they're dreaming, imagining what they want to be when they grow up. You know, Sienna wants to be a vet. A vet. She loves animals. Casey loves building things. He wants to be like an architect or a builder or an engineer or something like that. And obviously those things will change over time, and, but it's just so fun to see the, the, the drive and the dream and just the imagination at play. But I would put money on that no Hebrew boy grew up saying, I want to be a shepherd. That was kind of a backwater, menial, not that respected occupation. David, again, he's the forgotten one. But, can, but continue on in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was, this is the ESV, and I think this is why I thought of Rudy when I was reading through the text again. You just take out a D, right? He's ruddy, he's Rudy, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And that word Rudy, the, the you know, pick up commentaries or whatnot, often people will make the observation that this word, more than likely, is kind of like a, a slight dig to David. He's kind of, kind of almost the equivalent to our idea of like the runt of the litter, Something kind of similar, I think, is being described with David. Again, he's, we, we think of David as like this awesome king, shepherd, poet, warrior. The, the, the text, at least in this introduction to 1 Samuel 16, he's not that well respected and celebrated. He's not seen. He's not loved, even by those closest to him. He's rudy, had beautiful eyes, was handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is him. And Samuel took a horn of oil, just kind of fun fact. I think we've talked about this briefly before too. David, or Saul, excuse me, Saul was not anointed with a horn. David was. 
And that's significant because later on in the scriptures, the idea of a horn is this symbol of kind of power and strength. There's this clear demarcation between Saul's anointing, both are anointed, and David's anointing. David's anointed with the symbol of power. This person who's ruddy, who's weak, who's neglected, is being anointed with power. Anoint him, for this is him. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord, rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Two quick things again to point observationally from the text. Notice twice in that little section of verses I just read, the text says that David was anointed. Again, something we've also talked about as well, but whenever time you see that language of being anointed, it comes into the New Testament as the same word, the, the, the verb for the noun Messiah. It's this idea of, of David is literally being messiah in this moment, anointed. It's this pointer, it's this figure of talking and looking forward to the day when there would be the truly anointed one, Jesus himself. That David, as king, or soon to be king, is anointed just like Jesus will be anointed. Just like how Jesus, at his baptism, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The heavens are torn open. And, kind of related to that, secondly, notice the text says that the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord, rushes upon David at this moment. The person, David, who's been not seen, who's been neglected, who's not been selected or chosen in any way up until this point, God's spirit empowers David from this moment on. That David is the one who receives the gift of the spirit to be empowered to be God's anointed king for the rest of his life. And it's this beautiful, again, foreshadowing, this beautiful image and picture, thinking forward to the person of Jesus himself. When Jesus, when he stands there, his first public address in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah and says, from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to set liberty, to freedom for the captives. And here David is being messiahed in a way, with God's spirit, symbolized with the anointing of oil, to become the unlikely, unsung underdog to lead God's people into a brand new glorious future. Now, you think about this story, think about this text. There's a lot we could say and talk about here. And my guess is, for maybe a significant portion of us in this room, maybe we're familiar with a story like this, or this story. Maybe you have heard some of this before. You know, it doesn't really matter your outward appearance. That's not what's most important, your accomplishments, your achievements. Those things, yes, they can be good in some ways, but often it can lead us astray. But God really cares about the heart. He cares about our character. He cares about these internal things. We've heard something like that before. Many of us have. But my question is this. Why, and I'm going to put myself in this boat too, too. why is there still so much insecurity and so much wondering about our identity and who God has called us and how God sees us, even within the church today? Why is it so much easier to default to outward appearances and images and performance and presenting ourselves okay when we really aren't okay? Why is it so much easier to go the way of the world and follow after more wealth or better vacations or a better whatever 
to maintain appearances and image. We all have perhaps different ways of doing that, but why is it often easier to go that route versus truly believing what really matters is what God sees in the depths of our being? And as I was thinking about this, I think a huge part of this is that more often than we like to admit, the formative power of our culture to elevate outward appearances is often stronger than our formative practices to be in the presence of Jesus, to receive and to know at the depths of our being that God sees us and that God loves us despite our sin and brokenness. Our mechanisms to focus on the outward and then critique ourselves and others are often stronger than our mechanisms for formation in the way of Jesus. And so as we think about this text and kind of land a little bit here and talk about how might this text really land and press even deeper into our everyday lives, I want to just highlight three things from this text that I think hopefully will kind of resonate and apply for us. And they all start with S, because if I can't alliterate it, I probably can't remember it, right? First one, God's spirit. And then I'm talking about God's selection. Sorry, I can't even remember it even when I do alliterate it. <laughs> God's, God's sight. It's like the most important thing. It's like the main one. God's sight, God's selection, God's spirit. There you go. I can't remember it even when I try to alliterate. There you go. All right. Rewind. God's, God's sight. Think about this. Again, that line in verse 7. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, it's really easy for us as humans to have this outward focus. And this can look a myriad of different ways. Maybe for some, it's like the drive to have like the perfect career. And to be known for success in, in your vocation. And, and at the same time to remember, career is not bad. I'm not trying to you know, be negative against having a great career. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it, be, it can come to this place where something like that takes over. And what's driving you is this need for recognition, acceptance from that outward appearance. Or it could be the, the desire to have a family that's all put together. The desire to have perfectly behaved kids in public, which is impossible, right? Or to have like the perfect house or whatever the case might be, to focus on the outward, to think like that's what really matters in life. You know, one thing that as I was thinking about this, just a kind of practical way to diagnose, am I really paying attention to the heart or the outward? Is to maybe just kind of slow down and think about and ask yourself this question with different activities that you might be doing. What audience am I really doing this for? And then ask again, no, really, what audience am I really doing this for? Like, whose attention, whose applause am I really after in X, Y, or Z? Again, this is not to lead to guilt or shame or just feelings of like unworthy, that's not what I'm saying at all, but to really diagnose and slow down. What audience, whose attention, whose applause am I really after? In all the different things we do, because here's the thing, we could be doing really, 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 really good things 
in the name of Jesus and still be focused on the outward. That is the occupational hazard of serving Jesus, right? Because you can do all these amazing things, but from a place of just focusing on the outward. And I can't help but wonder, what would it look like to slow down and to recognize that that's not, the outward is not what's most important. What matters is something deeper. And what happens is often is from this place of focusing on the outward, we're then so consumed with the opinions of other people. We're, we're consumed with what this person thinks, what that person thinks, what the culture thinks of us. And so it can often lead to this overwhelming anxiety of having to be the kind of person that we think the outward world wants us to be. There's a British atheist who said in this book, Status Anxiety, it's a brilliant quote, not coming from a Christian worldview, but I think it's brilliant. He says this, the attention of others matters to us because we are afflicted by a congenial uncertainty as to our own value. As a result, we tend to allow the appraisals of others to play a determinative role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those who live among us. That's often what happens when we default to outward appearance. And so I think one of the greatest sort of tasks of our life is to reorient whose sight matters the most. For our own personal lives, whose sight, whose vision of reality matters the most to you? For the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks on the heart. Think about Jesus for a moment. I mentioned a moment ago that alluded to at least the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3 and a couple other places in the Gospels. And I think that moment where Jesus is baptized and the text talks about how the heavens are torn open and the voice from heaven speaks over Jesus is this beautiful window into what it looks like to see and experience God's sight on Jesus and by implication on us as well. Because the voice from heaven says, the Father says to Jesus as he's being baptized and he's coming out of the water, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus does any miracle of healing anyone of any sickness, before he does any teaching, Jesus is seen for who he is, not for what he does or doesn't do. And the same, friends, is true for us. When we think about the theology of the New Testament, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we are seen, we are loved, we are chosen, we are brought into the family of God, regardless of our past, regardless of what we've done. We turn to him in repentance and faith. And those same words are said over us, you are my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And embedded in that, Embedded in that line of you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased is yes, there's this level of acceptance. This is my son. There's a, a sense of affirmation, my beloved son. And there's affection with whom I am well pleased. And my guess is for many of us, acceptance, affirmation, affection, like we're maybe good for like one and a half of those. Like, I get that I'm accepted by Jesus, right? I believe Ephesians 2, by grace I've been saved through faith. There's nothing that I've done, nothing to boast about. I am accepted. I know the doctrine. I know the verse. We sing about it. I know who I am in Christ. And even what, the idea of, like, affection, love. We sing about God's love, the overwhelming, reckless love of God. 
God's great, amazing love. We're singing about love. Love, love, love. The sloppy wet kiss is love. Like we, we sing about love. Or it's an unforeseen kiss. You always go back and forth. Which one is it? Never mind. But the point is, it's easy to know about these things or sing about these things. But until you feel the affection of God for you as, as the God who sees you, and doesn't just tolerate you, but actually sees you and has affection for you, you will more than likely default to outward appearance and will not live from a place of secure identity in Christ. And so the, the, the prayer, the desire, is to become the kinds of people by the Spirit of God where we move from a place of not just defaulting to outward appearance, but recognizing God's overwhelming, yes, reckless love and affection, even though he sees all of your brokenness, even though he sees all of your failures, all of the ways you struggle and don't, quote, unquote, measure up. Tim Keller, one of my favorite teachers and thinkers, would talk about, I don't even know originally where he said this. Multiple times I've heard him talk about this. The idea of being known and loved, and I just kind of want to frame it just slightly different, the idea of being seen and loved. Because Keller would talk about this idea of we can be in moments and situations where we are completely known but not loved. Completely known. All your dirty laundry's out there. All of those dark spots, all of those struggles are out there, but you're not loved. And that is a dangerous and difficult place to be. And then there's the opposite, where you can be fully loved, at least in the image, appearance sort of way, but not actually known. And you live in this place of hiding, of shame, of wondering, will I really be found out for who I am? But then Keller would talk about the powerful combination of being both known and both loved, and having both of those together. Then maybe just frame it a little bit differently in light of our text, being both fully seen and both fully loved. That that, friends, my hunch is, is that that is what we are all longing for. To understand that we are and we are invited to be the kinds of people that are fully seen by God, fully seen for all our brokenness and our sin and our failures and still loved by our creator and still affectionately loved by the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is the invitation to live a new kind of life from a place of not having to hide, from a place of not having to wonder, will I really be found out? Because God sees, and that is a loving gaze. That is a gaze of affection. That is a gaze that looks into your brokenness, into your pain, and God sees you in that. And doesn't abandon you. And out of a place of love, yes, leads you and guides you by his spirit into deeper transformation and healing and repentance. Yes, for sure. But it's from this place of being both seen and loved. Not one or the other. That both go together in the message of scripture. And when you know that God truly sees you, this leads to security. It leads to living from a place of security, which leads me to my next kind of second point, God's selection. 
which in some ways I'll be briefer here, kind of dovetails and, excuse me, kind of parallels what I just said, but just out of a slightly different nuance, what do you think about this? In our text, David, yes, he's not seen by the people that are supposed to actually see him, his own family. But God sees. That's what we just talked about. But then at the same time, God just, yes, doesn't just see David. God selects. God chooses David to be a part of something bigger than himself, to be a part of something that David, I dare say, did not even fathom or dream that would happen in his life. To be the king, the leader of God's people. And God selects David, the least likely, the underdog, to be the leader for God's people. It reminds me of a passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. It's this pattern we see all throughout Scripture that God often, more than often, chooses the least likely. The ones who don't have the amazing resume or all the good looks or everything put together, God chooses imperfect people who the world often passes over and sees them and selects them and anoints them with his spirit. We're going to get to that in a moment. To be empowered to do things for him. Things that David, again, probably never thought of were possible in his life. And I can't but wonder, when we think about our own lives today, Sometimes we discount ourselves and say, God would never work through me in a powerful way. I have this thing in my past. I have this hindrance, this inconvenience, this whatever. And I wonder if there's a challenge there. Because in that moment when we say, I have this, so I probably won't be used by God. We're relying on our own strength in that moment. We're framing it about what I can do or not do versus recognizing that God selects. God is coming after David, the underdog, and God choosing what in the world says is foolish. He's the shepherd. He's the one that's forgotten about. He's the kind of the one that's not seen, and God chooses and selects him, which leads to the last point here, God's spirit. Again, it's pretty obvious from the text. God's spirit rushes upon David at the end here. God's spirit comes and empowers David. And the point is simply this, that whom God sees and selects, God's spirit empowers. That this is not, you know, a call to, you know, okay, I'm going to be the underdog. I'm going to be Rudy and do it myself. This is the main difference between Rudy and the, and the scripture here. That it's from the power of God's spirit, the anointing, the gift of God's empowering presence. That God leads us and guides us and empowers us for our lives today. And just to really kind of think about this for a moment. When we think about, think about your own life right now. Whatever season or stage of life that you might be at right now. And ask yourself and think about, am I living a life that's dependent on God's empowering presence? Am I living a life that is empowered by God's spirit, crying out to him? Jesus in the New Testament talks about this idea of being with the Father in the, quote, secret place, the place of intimacy and connection. Friends, I believe it's there that we recognize and we come to greater awareness of our need for God's spirit, 
a greater need for God's empowering and anointing in our lives. And to recognize that it's in those moments of abiding in the language of, of Jesus in the Gospel of John that we come to a deeper place of being empowered by God's Spirit. Slowing down, remaining, and recognizing that it is God's Spirit that enables us and empowers us to live the life that God has selected for us. To live the life that God has invited us into being. And it's in that moment when we recognize that it's God's Spirit working in and through us. That it's just another manifestation of this idea that God truly sees us. That God does not abandon us. Go figure it out on your own. No. God sees us and empowers us. And I believe that it's incumbent upon us in a, in a very simple way to be the kinds of people that are slowing down, recognizing our need and dependence, abiding in him, abiding in his love, his loving gaze upon us in our lives. And so friends, as we kind of transition to worship through song here, I want to invite the worship team to come up. You know, and our hope and prayer is that as we think about this text, we think about this passage, that God sees you, that God is for you. And I think about that line in Romans 5, that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That as God sees you despite all your brokenness and your failure, that God's love has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit in a way that to, to recognize and to understand that God's Spirit is working in your life, is coming to a place of a deeper appreciation and gratitude for God's love for you. And my hope and my prayer is that as we think about and dwell upon this text and as we sing to Jesus, that we would recognize that again, even in those moments of failure and brokenness and hurt and just complete uncertainty, God sees you there. And perhaps one more thing. Where is that one area of your life right now that you really don't think God sees you there. Is there a circumstance or a relationship or an attitude that you have or a desire that you have that maybe you're discounting that God actually sees you and sees that part of you? And maybe the invitation is simply to slow down right now and recognize that God, yes, sees you and loves you in that moment, in that particular circumstance. God, we want to look to you. God, we ask that Give us your eyes to see the world and ourselves the way you do. Give us your heart to 
know and to feel and to think and to see how you do, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can come to you as a complete mess and that you love us and that you are for us. Jesus, we love you only because you first loved us. We pray these things in your name.